kfa.org. For David Baker, September 26. And good afternoon. You are listening to 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KSCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a stone's throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, September the 17th, 2013. Oh boy, deja vu all over again. Horror and sorrow and death and the dread of more to come. Ah, yesterday when I heard that another man with a gun <laughs> had gone berserk, I have to admit that I I didn't rush. I didn't turn on CNN. I didn't even listen to mass media to see how the pundits were going to spin this one. <laughs> You're going to have to come up with a, 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 a new script, 13. Dead, was it? And how many wounded? How many? The pathology of these tormented souls, these men, uh, the ones who crack. Uh, they analyze it for a few days, the journalists, and they get you some details of his life, and everyone seems to hang on the, uh, the, uh, the story, you know, they want to know the man's possible motives. Uh, all of this provides the evening infotainment on network TV. It's become our national soap opera. <laughs> I call it the crimescape, right? Now, all this may change, this uh, human interest stuff. Uh, the victim's agony and family tragedies for so many people. But actually, uh, I think because, just because these crimes are ubiquitous, you know, everywhere, every day, uh, I think maybe somebody's going to have to rethink what's happening to us. Now, you know how it is. Today's horror story comes so fast, you know, on top of yesterday's crime. All of these shootings begin to blur into one another. Uh, it's again, yes, a crimescape. A picture of a society 
unwilling to examine cause and effect, unwilling to try to change the lives of our young men, and women too, while they're at it, but it does seem that it is young white men who are caught up in this this curious, uh, I don't know what to call it, a soulless state. I wonder what we could do to create an environment in which our children can thrive, not just survive, but thrive. Several other countries do this. <laughs> Finland comes to mind, Iceland, the Scandinavian countries, and... Uh, Anyway, actually, global uh, global mayhem is a fact now. No country has escaped this this crack up. I think it's yes, it's a crack up. <laughs> Remember James Baldwin going to visit the the filmmaker Engmar Bergman, sitting in his uh, sitting in his office. Baldwin said he always wondered how Bergman got those uh, colors, those uh, what do you call it, the shadows in his films. And he said he looked out the guy's window. And sure enough, Scandinavia looks that way. But never mind. What he did there was ask uh, ask Bergman what he thought of this uh, this state of affairs. Of course, now that's, <laughs> that's 30 years ago. They were watching the motorcycle boys... Uh, roaring around town and he said how will it end how will it end and uh bergman said it will end with all of them shooting each other in the streets actually (laughs) that wouldn't be quite as bad as this this business of shooting whoever is handy particularly if they are vulnerable young children whatever uh i don't know how we've come out on top, uh, how North America seems to be the biggest, uh, biggest and best when it comes to the shootouts. Uh, I guess, yeah, the largest number of senseless killings seems to be on uh, this continent. Well, there's an exception or two to prove the rule. Uh, yes, what is that? People sit around in the coffee house and they talk about you know, my atrocity is bigger than your atrocity. They're competing for which is the the awfulest. What I'm going to do today, uh, just to relieve my own mind, I'm going to dip back into some of my essays on how we're going to fix all this, right? <laughs> There's an essay in my collection, uh, Stone's Throw. It tries to make out a case always trying to make out a case for liberal education. (laughs) Somebody said to me the other day, what's a conservative education? I said, that's what they're getting now. You know, you go to school to learn how to make money. But a liberal education is supposed to tenderize you, give you some uh, heightened sensitivity. Charlotte Bronte wrote, uh, nothing refines like affection. Yes, I always think of the revolution of touch. Mm-hmm. I think that those children who are not loved are 
time bombs. Not all of them, of course, but let's face it, uh, things can get pretty terrible. Timothy McVeigh is one. He had no women in his life. He lived in a gun culture. Remember, he blew up the federal building. Ah, everybody's forgotten. His mother left when he was very young as a boy. Then he went into the army and lived with uh, the men in his family and within a gun culture. Timothy McVeigh is some somebody, let's see, from the lost generation. Gertrude Stein always called the, the boys the lost generation. Now, you know, the pundits thought that was about the jazz age or something. That's not at all what she meant. What she meant was that young men who are separated from family, from women in particular, between the ages of 17 and, oh, 25, uh, they, they, uh, they're missing a part of their souls. They're, they're, uh, is that not humanized yet? Now, any society that neglects its children will inherit the wind. That's what's happening when we fail the children. It's like a snake eating its own tail. It's kind of cannibalizing our own uh, species suicide, if you like. Now, I've got this essay here. It's pretty much about sense and sensibility, about the head and the heart about perceptions, that is, you know, intellect, intellect, perceptions, awareness, what we see, and emotional intelligence. There's a uh, big fuss being made these days. There's even a book called Emotional Intelligence. I don't think there's any other kind, uh, but obviously uh, (laughs) I was wrong because people are just discovering it. I mean, feeling comes first. I think, (laughs) no, I feel that uh, the emotions that I have, the feelings that I have, translate themselves into language, and then the head takes over. Then compassion uh, looks to be a practical plan, as well as making us Feel good, yes. Compassion is a nice thing. It's also, what is it, uh, uh, a good plan. A good plan for enlightened action, right? Uh, enlightened, what do you call that? Uh, kind of action that furthers one's own goals. Uh, never mind. I'm going to jump into this essay. Because I'm beginning to feel that I have to teach myself all this stuff all over again. This revolution of touch. Uh, I'll start with Freud's civilization and its discontents, which is the introduction here to this essay. All Freud wrote, The fateful question of the human species seems to me to be whether and to what extent the cultural process developed in it will succeed in mastering the derangements of communal life caused by the human instinct of aggression and self-destruction. Oh, right, there he goes. (laughs) In this connection, 
Perhaps the phase through which we are at this moment passing deserves special interest. Now, if it was a special moment early in the 20th century when Freud wrote Civilization and Its Discontents, it's a lot more special today. He goes on to write, Men have brought their powers of subduing the forces of nature to such a pitch that by using them, they could now very easily exterminate one another to the last man. Footnote here, I would add to the last child. They know this, men know this. Hence arises a great part of their current unrest, their dejection, their mood of apprehension. And now it may be expected that the other of the two heavenly forces, eternal Eros, will put forth his strength so as to maintain himself alongside his equally immortal adversary. Now, of course, Freud, when he speaks of the adversary of Eros, he's talking about Thanatos. Uh, you know, my father's favorite poem was Thanatopsis, right? Anyway, uh, life and death, folks, uh, they are not good and evil, but they are, uh, yes, equally immortal. Now, what if, what if Eros is a woman? You remember in Greek mythology, uh, Eros was a guy. Well, I think that at least half the time, Eros is a girl. I mean, there's always plenty of death uh, or Thanatos connected with women and women's poetry. Uh, I want to tell you about women's poetry. A friend of mine, Alicia Ostaker, wrote a book, and I quoted in this essay. It's all about women's poetry. It's called Stealing the Language by Alicia Ostriker. It's all about how women have to take the language that men have used for centuries and write their own story. Alicia comments here about, uh, yes, about love and Eros and Thanatos. She says, If the release of anger is a major element in women's poetry... So, too, is the release of a contrary passion, which in part explains the vehemence of women's rage. What do women want? This was the question that was, well, it was ancient even before Freud asked it. A provisional answer, if we are to trust women's revenge poetry would be that they want man's phallus or what the phallus represents, that is, this power to conquer and punish. Okay, now this gets a, a little uh, 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 a little dicey here. Uh, I was asking myself uh, all the way through this essay, why is it that women don't get a machine gun or a... Uh, Repeating, I don't even know what they are, you know, uh, yes, weapons of mass destruction. But anyway, uh, I think, yes, repeating rifles. Uh, I, I have a vision in my head of women doing these things. And actually, there are a few movies. But other than that, uh, I guess 
uh, I counted, I think I've counted three women suicide bombers, but that's another story. Anyway, women write revenge poetry. That makes them feel better, I guess. Anyway, uh, this provisional answer that uh, my friend wrote about is that women want the, uh, the power that males have. This is represented by the phallus. That is the, uh, well, my own term for penis envy is sociocultural underprivilege. But, of course, Freud is always catchy. His term is much more uh, impressive. I always uh, put in parenthesis, Venus envy is the real problem. Castration fantasies, those are taboo for women. Uh Rage must not be acted out by the female. I remember years and years ago, I I did a performance piece around town in the cafes and over at the intersection, and it was a long monologue. Uh, and in this, uh, well, let's call it a theater piece, uh, a woman confesses to castration, and murder. <laughs> she did it. And uh, <laughs> she describes her life surrealistically. She's at the end of her existential rope. To relieve her anguish, her feelings, she recalls the night that she cut her lover's throat and left little bits of him all over the Boston Common. <laughs> pontificating, pretentious old prick he was, she says to herself. She mails the tools of his love to his mother in a coffee can with three black silk roses. Why three black silk roses? Why not? Now, this little monologue or play was, of course... A fantasy. What it is really describing is woman's revenge on the man who killed her creativity. That is her baby. In the play, I say, say that he killed her baby. The baby represents her bush soul, her true self. Remember Jung on individuation. The male mystique has robbed her of the part of herself that wants to be a poet and a priestess and a pantheist. I was trying to express woman's anguish over the loss of her authentic being. Now, her revenge is only an afterthought, a shrug. It suggests the depths of her bitterness toward the linear Eurocentric masculine world which has no place for her beliefs. She admits cheerfully to killing her tormentor. Well, she says, someone had to. Now, I just mention this because what was interesting to me was that after a performance of this play, in San Francisco at the Intersection Coffee House, that's what it was in those days, Two men, I guess in their thirties, 
white, apparently middle class. They took the time and effort to threaten me very obliquely and quite cryptically, but very, very carefully. Ah, it worked. I left off performing the play for more than ten years. I did do an excerpt at Wolfgang's nightclub in the late 80s. Yes, I was curious to find out whether times had changed or whether the audience has changed. One very nice young man seemed overwhelmed. Uh, I assured him I was just a tired mom with two sons his age. He kept asking me how I could live with so much depression. Uh, I explained that the cure for depression is expression, and that that was what I was doing, I thought. <laughs> now, my friend Alicia Ostricker, in her book, Stealing the Language, she writes, Another answer, if we judge by the poetry of feminine desperation, is what the Sibyl said to the boys in Petronius's Satyricon, which T.S. Eliot quotes as the epigraph to the wasteland. That quote is, I want to die. The violent desires arising from the contemplation of powerlessness are suggestively interchangeable, and those women who express them most dramatically and thrillingly make clear at the same time that the wish to kill, to die, confirms a dualized world and a dualized sexuality. Okay, Alicia really works on this stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, the Wasteland was my favorite poem in college, but I discovered after a few years that uh, I was sick of the Wasteland. I wanted my land, my place. Anyway, I date the demise of my own death wish from the menopause. Somewhere around my mid-forties, I ceased to want to kill, to die. Ah, we are all of us just biological units. There is less love to lose after a certain age. <laughs> ah, those hormones. I believe that I was a masculinist romantic much of the time until I was, oh, 44. Both my mother and my sister died at that age, at the age of 44. <laughs> As my younger son suggested to me on several occasions, uh, the time had come to burn out or rewire. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, re, not rewire so much as uh, recreate. Uh, do a little rebirthing. Anyway, I'm exaggerating, of course. I still have romantic twinges from time to time, even old as I am now. But the point is, 
that if women can break away from the death culture that has been imposed upon them, from the desire to kill, to die, either by expressing and thus dissipating that desire, or by simply outliving it, as I did, then they can come back to Eros. <laughs> yes, I think of myself <laughs> as like a little, ah, little pan, a little green man, hopping around in the woods, hugging trees. Yes, that's what I like to do. I'm in love with everything that lives, uh, you know, stones, leaves, anything. The stones do live, by the way. Uh, here's what Alicia writes about that. She says, We have now to look at a quite different form of female desire and to delineate an alternative portrait of female pleasure. For it is not only women's aggressive impulses which have been thwarted and made taboo in her past life and literature. Her eroticism has suffered equally. Where female aggression has been twisted into manipulativeness, female ardor has been chained to submissiveness. To love for a woman has meant to yield, to give herself. <laughs> now, we've known some of this since Karen Horney and Simone de Beauvoir. You remember her book, The Second Sex. This addiction to love relationships in which the woman is powerless and suppliant. Uh, yes, it's romantic thraldom. It's a woman's peculiar curse. Uh, in some magazines, they call this being a sex slave. Now, <laughs> uh, this essay goes on at great length, and I wish I had uh, hours and hours to read the whole thing, because it's fascinating stuff. Uh, I go on about a book called Women Who Love Too Much, and I thought, that's ridiculous. No one can love too much. When love fails, you just have to love more. Anyway, every woman in Berkeley was clutching that book for years, so much for our new age awareness. Spoke to a young woman a while back, and I gave her some books on feminism, and she said, oh, no, no, I don't want to touch those. Will they make me hate men? I said, no, they're supposed to make you love men, at least as much as you love yourself. Uh, I think that when I was an actress... I could handle some of that stuff, that pretend, you know, pretend to be suppliant and submissive. But as a writer, when I took up the pen, it began to take a terrible toll. An actress can immerse herself in a role. It's very natural for a woman. She can take pleasure in her ability to get what she wants by becoming something she's not. I did it a lot. And it gave me imaginative skills I can still use. But sometime in my late thirties, I was hit hard by a strange version 
of the Eros and Psyche myth. You remember that one? Mm-hmm. I began to turn on the light and look at my lovers. Do you remember? Psyche's sisters told her to light a candle and see who Eros really was. Of course, thought breaks the heart and things fall apart. What I did learn was that romance is unsatisfactory as a religion. No use looking for the infinite in the eyes of another. Well, I wish I had time to finish this essay. Uh, I would like to know what it is about being a man that leads you to take a gun and uh, express your rage by eliminating other souls. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air next week at this same time, God is willing. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The 8th Annual Bay Area Flamenco Festival features world-class artists from the gypsy communities of Andalusia. Flamenco festival events take place at venues in Berkeley, San Francisco, and Santa Cruz over three consecutive weekends, September 21st through October 6th. Featured artists include living legend of gypsy flamenco dance, Concha Vargas, internationally renowned guitarist, David Serva, and rising star dancer, Gemma Moneo, who brings the Gitano essence of flamenco into the 21st century. Proceeds benefit Bay Area Flamenco's Festival's Grassroots Cultural Exchange Program. For more details and or tickets, call 510-444-2820 or go to our website, bayareaflamencofestival.org. Mm-hmm.